Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity, Celebrity Memoir Book, Book Club. Club. Home of the books and club of the brave. Celebrities. So brave for sharing their stories and us for sharing their stories with what we think they thought they were saying. Basically, I'll give it to you guys straight. We are reading the books. We are summarizing them for you. And we're making them funny according to what we find funny. You might yes. not find this funny unless you're right. But you could just find something else. <laughs> yeah. If you don't like the way we talk about books, I've got news for you. There are thousands of ways to not listen to us. <laughs> and if you do like what we're doing, then baby, come on board because the dirt is feeling lukewarm. Okay. I think that's what a worm's favorite temperature. Yeah. But on a boat, like you have like a, a mud boat. I don't think that that would do well in the sea. Well, Claire, have you tried it? I can imagine it. Anyway, <laughs> Ashley, who are our favorite worms of the week? This week, I would like to thank Bull and Branch for supporting our show. Bull and Branch sheets aren't just buttery, breathable, and impossibly comfortable. They get softer with every wash. Experience the best sheets you've ever felt. Get 20% off site-wide during the annual summer event happening now, only at bullandbranch.com. And thank you to Freshly for supporting Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Freshly has delicious, fresh, healthy meals ready to heat and enjoy in just three minutes. Stop stressing about dinner. Right now, you can get $125 off your first orders at freshly.com slash worm. And thank you to the fun and challenging June's Journey game. Who doesn't love a good mystery? In the hidden object murder mystery game, June's Journey, you'll awaken your inner sleuth and step right into a thrilling adventure set in the heart of the roaring 20s. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey today, available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. Claire? Yes? If life was a game, or perhaps a memoir, what would you title this week's chapter? It's getting hot in here, so take off all your clothes. Slutty. Slutty. Me and Mac, we have like one true domestic conflict between us. And he's a big AC proponent. And I am my father's daughter, which means I think AC, it's like only if you're about to die. I don't know why. Growing up, I'd always be like, why wouldn't my dad just turn on the AC? And now that I'm an adult, I'm just like, AC is the last resort. And he thinks we should just have the ACs running whenever we're home and it's hot. Every single day, I find out another thing that makes you the exact same as Bug. Anyway, our big thing is that he's always like, if I'm hot, I should turn the AC on. And I think if you're hot, you should just turn off all the lights and sit very still for a minute and see if you can just cool yourself down. <laughs> okay. I, I hate to take sides, especially because I'm throwing the bucket on old Bug, but I'm team Mac on this one. I don't know why people can't just try turning off all the lights and being very still. What do you team big power when Con Ed says there's going to be a heat wave? Be careful with your AC use. And it's like, I don't know, Con Ed. How about you be careful with your fucking grid building? I don't have Do better. 24 hour a day AC money. I don't know who does, who among us, but I just, it makes me uncomfortable and it makes me stressed out. I think the cold air hurts my bones. And I think as we're coming into the hottest parts of the summer, a New York City summer is one of the most disgusting places to be in the world. <laughs> from a heat perspective, but I just think we should all consider just being very still for a minute. Just close your eyes and be still and think cool thoughts. And that works. A lot of the time, all you have to do is turn off the lights and sit still in the dark and your body temperature will lower itself. I just want to be clear that I don't co-sign this message. Okay. Well, the world is yours to destroy. You're only making the world hotter. It's a sick little cycle. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity, what would the name of your memoir be? This week's chapter is going to be called Everyone's Getting Help, Baby. Oh my God, who's getting help? Everybody. 
I've been spending my week doing a lot of logistics, trying to like better myself and my life and Bug's life and everybody's life, to be honest, because we affect more people than just ourselves. (laughs) Okay, so I have been, you know, working on trying to find a therapist, which I knew would be an endeavor because it just is hard. So I've, you know, I like did a round of reaching out to people and now I'm doing a round of consultations and it's just like rounds after rounds and then hopefully, hopefully eventually I'll be better. And then for Bug, I've been doing the exact same thing because I'm trying to do another round of training with her that will help her. (laughs) First I went online and I found people, but it's so stressful because this is what happened last time as I like took a recommendation from someone that I trusted and I, I like them and I think that this guy was a good person. He just did not help with the problems Bug had. I will say, I think if you're a dog trainer and you can't help train the dog, you can say they weren't good at their job. Okay, so anyway, so now I've been just talking to people on the street who have good dogs <laughs> and being like, I saw this lady with a pit bull that was like really, she was like working with it and doing this thing with treats and it was like kind of bobbing and weaving and I was like, how did you make your dog do that? And she gave me a name and yes, Yesterday, I talked to someone on the street who had a good dog and they gave me a name. <laughs> I think that's really smart. The proof is in the pudding. So now I'm doing now I'm doing dog training consultations and Ashley training consultations. And I don't know, in two, five, seven months, we could have some very healthy people living in my apartment. You could be too powerful. <laughs> I'm really proud of you. That's, I know that's a big step. It's a lot of work to find a therapist and a dog trainer. Thank you. <laughs> And I've also been handling other logistics. Man, I'm going to be an unstoppable force in, like I said, two, six, eight, twelve, fifteen months. <laughs> I can't wait to know you then. Anyway, should we get into this week's memoirist, who is, dare I say, one of the healthiest people we've ever read about? I love her so much. I have never been moved to tears so many times in four hours, except for during the pandemic pretty often. <laughs> it was like a different flavor of tear though. Yeah, no, that was like a sad tear. This was like a hopeful tear. I'm so excited to get into this book. We are reading this week, Around the Way Girl by Taraji P. Henson. So Taraji P. Henson was born 9-11, <laughs> 1970. This book came out in 2016, which was, as you guys might know, six years ago. And so I guess at that point she was 46. So I want to talk about this book a little bit before we get into it. Some people have asked us which memoirs are actually good. But I think one thing that I really noticed in this book is the way it's written with so much positive energy. And I know that that sounds silly, but there really is a movement and an energy from chapter to chapter. The way it's written feels like it really carries you. It brings you. It's not just like, and then I went here and then I went here and then I went here. It really takes you on a journey with it in like a positive and joyful way in which she grows and explores and comes into herself. And it's extremely pleasant to read. I think two things that a memoir has to do to be successful is one, it has to be able to show emotional growth. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be able to simultaneously convey how you felt in the moment with writing that allows people to see how your life allows you to look back on it. For there to be like a cohesive emotional arc and like a character development, we have to be able to see both things simultaneously. And I think also something that a memoir has to take into consideration is that however hard your life was, whatever you've been through at this point in time, the reader is literally reading your memoir. Mm -hmm. So there is a power that needs to be acknowledged that clearly you did make it in some way that like your life story and your words telling your own life story had enough power to be read at this moment by this reader. And I think when you talk about like positive energy, there is something to that. You can't really come at it 
being like everything sucked, everything was sad, which I think you, you said it was like an Emily Ratajkowski. I think one of my biggest criticisms of that book is that it's such a downer. And I know that that's like a really mean thing to say, but it really was written with so much sadness and there was never any acknowledgement of and then things weren't so sad. Yeah, you kind of have to admit that in some way things got better because clearly... You're writing a book about it for people to read. What are you hoping that they get out of this? Because what I get out of this book is just joy and hope and accomplishment. And that's something nice to walk away with. She starts her book, chapter one, Fearless. Let my mother tell it. All that I am and all that I know is because of my daddy. A declaration that some might find shocking considering the list of negative attributes that floated like a dark cloud over my father's short, hard-lived life. During his 58 years on this good green earth, Boris Henson, born and reared in Northeast DC, had been homeless and broke, an alcoholic, and physically and mentally abusive to my mother during their five years together. Plus prone to hot tempers and cool off periods in the slammer. So she really illustrates this right away with one of her earliest memories of her dad, which was him kidnapping her. Her mom and her dad broke up. He did not have visitation. He was not allowed to come visit her. Finally, one day he comes banging at the door and is just like, I want to see my kid. I want to see my kid. The mom is like, I really don't want you to come in here. I don't want you to come in here. Finally, the cops come and placate to the dad because... Well, I think the dad called the cops. He had a friend who was a cop. Okay, so he, <laughs> he brought his cop over and the cop was like, let's just let him in for a second. So he goes in, sees Taraji, scoops her up and runs. And Taraji, of course, is four years old. She's just excited to see her dad. But she gives us as an example that... Despite what he went through, my father always squared his shoulders, extended his arms, opened his heart, and did what was natural and right and beautiful. He loved me. My father's love was all at once regular and extraordinary, average and heroic. For starters, he was there. No matter his circumstances, no matter what kind of fresh hell he was dealing with or dishing out, he was there. And I do think in this book, and I think it becomes because you see by the end, he's able to get sober and start a new life and become a better husband. He was always a good father to her. He always loved her and supported her and was present in her life. So even though he had a horrible relationship with her mother, obviously, in a way that, I mean, his actions are indefensible, but I think she's able to look at his character with compassion and understanding and forgiveness because he does go on to change. And to her, he was always incredible. She really has a lot of compassion for where he came from and how he got to where he was when he eventually passed. And just seeing the fact that he ever got to who he was at the end is extremely impressive. We don't know this yet. So reading the way she writes about her dad in the beginning is tough. Yeah, She I writes... My father was a good guy who simply wasn't very diplomatic about his wants and needs versus his rights. And it's like, that's a very beautiful way to say, did whatever he wanted. There's a couple of passages where she describes the abuse, her dad trying to kill her mom at different points. So reading it, I definitely was like, okay, here's another story. Tale as old as time. My dad was a horrible, horrible, abusive man, but he was so funny when we did see him, but... Listen, if there's one thing I trust, it's Taraji now that I've read her book. Here's what she explains. She says he was a Vietnam vet and an artist at heart. And when his finances were flush, he made good money as a metal fabricator, installing metal bars on the windows of houses throughout the metro DC area. But my father was also a victim of the lack of support provided for Vietnam vets who serve their country only to come home to a nation still reeling from political and racial turmoil. To say nothing of that shady Reaganomics math, the only thing that trickled down to him during the Reagan administration was a decrease in the lucrative contracts that sustained him financially. Rather than fold into a ball and disappear from the world, he turned all that ugly upside down and let me examine its underbelly. It was important to him that I see it all, the good, the tragic, the long, slow climb he made towards finding peace for himself, which he ultimately did when he got sober and found Jesus. He taught her to train my eyes, not on the misfortune, setbacks, or the possibility of failure, but on living, really living without fear. Time and time again, my father would show me that no matter how often he fell from grace, he simply would not let the dread and anxiety of another failure shackle him. And how could he? 
He needed both of his hands free so that he could place them squarely on my back to push me forward past the fear. So one of his big things is always pushing through fear. He says fear is a lie and you have to just be able to get through it. And he pushes her through it with force a few times until she learns how to do it on her own, which she carries with her to this day. He managed this not by so much being strict, but more so by trusting me, by encouraging me to trust myself. She like really loves him that he wanted me to fear less, to be fearless. And she really appreciates that. And he is, I mean, I will say, as a father to her, he is deeply supportive. She tells the story later about how after her mom kicked him out and he couldn't find a job, he got a job scrubbing toilets at a football stadium. And even though it barely made ends meet, he used the opportunity to get free tickets to take her to football games all the time. Like he was always doing what he could to try to be with his daughter and support her. So then I was like, okay, well, what about your mom? Your mom who actually raised you. But she loves her too. So she talks about her mom. She goes, my mother was right. I am in a lot of ways like my dad, my candor, my humor, my relationship to fear come directly from him. While my dad schooled me on the game, it was my mom who taught me how to live it. So she really has this belief and this understanding of herself that she has a lot of her dad's qualities, but it was her mom that molded those qualities into who she is today, which is a really beautiful way to give credit to both of them. And we don't, I hate to give her credit for something that seems pretty basic, but we don't see it that often. Yeah. All this drive, all this passion, all this get to it and get it done all up in my bones. I get it from my mama. She set up the goalposts and showed in word and in deed that no matter what lies on the road ahead of me, fear is utterly useless. This she had to do because she was a single mother heading our family of two in a neighborhood in Southeast DC that when we stepped outside the cocoon paradise she created, replete with my very own room and everything I needed and even some of the things that I wanted, wasn't the safest place for a woman in her young charge. When she wasn't battling my father, she was battling the streets, literally. But she says, with my mother, I felt protected, mainly because she always made a way out of no way for me. Because of her, our little family had stability, and we never got put out of our place. Neither the power nor the water was ever shut off because of an inability to pay the bill. We were never hungry. Christmas was always bomb. She tells story after story about all these things. that, Even though her mother, who worked her way up from being... I think like a cashier at a department store to becoming like the regional logistics manager. She was living paycheck to paycheck, but she always made sure Taraji had everything she needed and then some. Like she had a beautiful bedroom set. She always could have new clothes. She's like telling stories about outfits her mom made her from scratch and then waking up to her famous breakfast sandwich. Like her mom really did everything she could to make sure that Taraji had everything she wanted Mm -hmm. or not wanted, but everything she needed and and then a little bit more. She says, I can't help but think about her and the sacrifices she made to make life beautiful. My father may have put the fire in my heart but my mother taught it how to beat they both showed me by example how to be fearless and like even though she didn't have a lot and she tells stories about her mom was mugged twice in their parking lot outside their home they lived in a really dangerous with area. her there Taraji was standing next to her as a kid I mean it was not a picture-perfect life but there was just so much love and I think that's what comes across mm-hmm. is that her parents did everything they could to be dedicated parents even if they didn't always have materially what was needed and then also what comes through in this book is the support system that both sides of the family offered whenever they you know needed somewhere for Taraji to go she had somewhere to go whenever they needed family to like be there for them they had that and that left a really big mark on her mm-hmm So she ends this chapter talking about when she got offered the role of Cookie or when her manager won her audition for the role of Cookie on Empire, which I think to this day is probably her biggest commercial success. She didn't want to take it because she thought it was like a stereotypical black character and she did not like the idea of portraying herself as someone who had been in jail and she refused to do it. And even though every time she read the script, she was really drawn in and captivated by the content of the show, she felt that she did not want to get in trouble with the black community for portraying someone who had gone to jail for drugs and now is like this hip hop matriarch. And then she realized because of her parents, she goes, I don't want to live in fear. I don't care what people think of me. And she's like, it has been so rewarding to play that character. And she also says that she is like, I grew up 
in a world where I knew people who'd been through similar things as Cookie and they are people that I love and care about who have enormous hearts. And so instead of playing her as like the stereotype that people might see, I'm going to build the world in which Cookie is someone you root for constantly. She says, I would build a backstory for her so airtight, so sympathetic that viewers and critics alike would see past her troubles and straight to her heart. Think about it. In the real world, people will empathize with the coldest, most calculating evildoer imaginable if he's got a story to tell. A man could be up for the death penalty for killing a dozen children, but if someone gets on the stand and testifies to his backstory, the jury might be a little bit more inclined to give him life in prison instead of the needle. That's how I decided I needed to handle Cookie. I created a backstory rooted in courage and her love for her family. That's the other thing that comes to this is her dedication to her craft. So she says, I mean, she's also funny. She goes, look, I'm not saying that I'm invincible. Skiing, for example, looks amazing, but I have no intention of climbing into a ski suit, pulling goggles over my eyes and flinging my body off the side of the mountain. That's a fear I'm not interested in overcoming. But when it comes to something that stokes my passion and to things that mean something to me, I tend not to lean on fear. Like my daddy said, fear is a liar. I make a point of calling it's bluff, which I love as, yes. a, as a mantra to take with you. There's a difference between fear and common sense, not skiing, common sense, being afraid of an important step in your career. That's fear. Yeah. So then she gets into her childhood. She says that where she grew up in a predominantly black community, creativity was extremely encouraged. It wasn't this world where everyone is supposed to be wearing the same thing, being the same uniform type. Being your own self, having a voice was critical in the hood. As a community, we prize creativity and even and especially if the world we live in isn't quick to reward it. In the hood, having a voice then is freedom. But really that one black kid is doing that weird thing with his pants or his hair is the very definition of trendsetting. The mainstream's first reaction to it is, what in the hell are you wearing? Years later, it's cool as hell on a Kardashian. Where I come from, we don't need to wait for that validation. And she says, in a world where you can feel very lost, to have something that screams your voice, like a style or a flair, is very important. It makes you wonder if the hoop earrings that Khloe Kardashian invented, did those originate somewhere else? (laughs) I don't think so. Christine Quinn knows a lot about fashion. I don't think she'd get that wrong. (laughs) Please, that was a reference to Christine Quinn's book. If you're going to be mad at me, go listen. (laughs) She talks about how she was always a quirky kid, the one who had a little extra flair about her. And she tells this story about how her mom would make her new clothes. Every night after work, she would arrive home from her job, prepare dinner, check over my homework, and then hunt her body over the sewing machine. And she makes her this three-piece suit that has pants and a skirt. And Taraji comes out one day wearing the skirt over the pants. And her mom's like, okay, oh, I didn't, th- okay, I didn't think you were gonna wear them all together, but okay. <laughs> and she's like, but she didn't stop me from going to school like that though. I wanted to wear every piece at the same damn time. And my mother, ever the encourager, took me by the hand and walked me into my fourth grade class, kissed me goodbye and let me swag exactly like I wanted. Sending a clear, powerful message that if I liked it, she loved it. I love that. Like it wasn't perfect, but she does paint a picture of just this home that was so full of love. The love, but not delusion. Because for every story about her mom being just like the most loving, supportive, her dad, who was also very loving and supportive, was also a straight talker. So if you were doing something stupid, just off the rails, he was going to say it directly to you. I come by my frankness honestly. I'm an extrovert by nature and I have no problem being unapologetically bold, loud, foolish, and funny and saying exactly what's on my mind. And then she says she gets that from her dad and she tells this story about a time in high school when she was not washing her hair that often. She was like, you know, it, it takes a really long time to do your hair and then also it holds better when there's some like an oil base to it. So <laughs> Listen, I've been there. My hair looks a lot better when I don't wash it. So sometimes you just have to push on as long as you can. So she was going two weeks between hair washes and her dad was with her one day and like hugged her and said, why does your head smell like goat ass? (laughs) And she used that line. She wrote it into Cookie's character. And she said she never went that long without washing her hair again. So like it was a lesson to be learned. 
That's the other thing is sometimes I get mad at my parents for embarrassing me a lot. But then sometimes you think about who it is embarrassing you and you're just like, well, better you than a date Somebody's or someone. Somebody's going to tell me or, or nobody. Better or nobody. you than nobody. And I live my life with goat ass smelling hair. <laughs> so then she gets into how she got into drama. I mean, she always had a flair for entertaining and performing. And also a flair for the dramatics. She says that one of her dad's key qualities is that he's an extremely dramatic person and she gets that right from him. Yeah, I mean, she tells a story about learning to swim, going to swim classes, and she was so afraid of the water that she would put one toe in and then just scream (laughs) and run around the entire hour of the swim class. And finally, her dad was like, enough. (laughs) She said that one day her dad just like showed up in a leather trench coat and threw her in the pool. <laughs> and he said, and you don't get out of that. <laughs> Learn to swim. <laughs> Which, like, fair enough. I mean, you can't just be screaming for hours. <laughs> okay, so she would go spend every summer with her grandparents. There was nothing to do down there. There was no iPads. There was, like, no other kids. She would just sit in front of the mirror and dance and sing. She loved Debbie Allen on the show Fame. And she would just turn on the radio and sing along to every song and choreograph dances and watch herself. Yeah, and then she gets involved in a arts program. My father's older sister, Norma, and my godmother, Brenda, paid for me to go to this particular weekend arts program, in part because they knew I was interested in becoming a performer, but also because my mother had to work weekends and needed a safe place to send me while she put in her hours. It took a village to get me up on the stage, but only seconds for me to fall in love with everything about being there. As Ashley said, something you see is both of her parents actually came from, she calls them solidly upper middle class families. It goes to show you like you need somebody that can help you. That was one of the saving graces, I think, of her childhood is when things got too bad, both of her parents had someone they could call on to help. It's about having someone there and then also having the ability to call and ask because I think that a lot of people have someone they technically could call, but they don't want to. Anyway, she loved it so much. Her her whole family comes to watch her perform and they were the perfect audience, egging me on and making me believe that being an actress was really possible. My father was my biggest cheerleader. He would say to me consistently and loudly, Taraji, you already got the glory. You've already collected your Oscar. Right now, you're just going through the motions. Stay on your path. You're the greatest actor alive. That's how you walk. Walk in that. You're the greatest actor alive. (laughs) To like a nine-year-old. That's so cute. (laughs) She says, I recognize the importance and especially the beauty in there telling me you can. I mean, because that wasn't practical. They weren't wealthy. They weren't connected. They were, it's not even like they were like a family in the middle of Los Angeles. They were in Washington, D.C. and telling her like, you are going to be a star and just figure it out. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to do something reasonable that will definitely have a salary. I mean, I do think the confidence that her father instilled in her combined with like the work ethic and love and support, more grounded support from her mother is why she's successful because... Yeah. As we always say, you need a little bit of delusion to be successful in this business or any business, really. And she had that. And it was fully because her dad had convinced her. She had gone to Catholic school for a while. And then her mom just didn't have the money for the tuition anymore. And she didn't even like it. It is crazy to me that back in the day and not that long ago, nuns were allowed to just beat kids in school. I mean, if anyone's in Catholic school now, let us know if that's still happening. There's no way that's still happening. It might be. Yeah, let us know. We don't know. Let us know. I mean, in Julia Hart's book, her son was at like a very religious Jewish school and her son, who is not that old now, said his classmates were getting the shit beaten out of them. Mm. That was like, what, 10 years ago? 15? God, we give religious people too much power. (laughs) Anyway, so then she ends up going to the school called Friendship Educational Center, which she now says, looking back, was probably closer to juvie than a school. I think it must have been some failed hippy-dippy nonsense school where the school had no walls. Like, the classrooms didn't have any walls. 
I don't know what they thought they were doing there, but it clearly did not work. And then the school itself had a lot of kids. This was in the 80s during the crack epidemic. And she said it was just a lot of the kids had nobody at home looking out for them or supporting them. And so she felt very isolated and alone being there with the family that she did have. She said she made a best friend named Tracy. Who's still her best friend to this day. Yeah. Tracy and I survived it though because we were different. We had mothers who held down jobs and worked tirelessly to keep the madness of the DC crack epidemic from crossing our thresholds. And Tracy was lucky too to have her father at home. Stability at home translated into the two of us excelling in class, diving headfirst in extracurriculars, and being noticed by the few teachers who cared about us kids, teachers who could identify and nurture our passions. And one teacher even gets them into performing and has them perform Macbeth at a competition and they win. She and Tracy both have the acting bug really bad. They're both auditioning for things. There is both their dreams to go become an actor in Hollywood. So her and Tracy are like their best friends, their partners in crime, and they're really into acting. So after they win the witches competition in Macbeth, they go on to do a beauty pageant that has a talent component. So they're really in it to do these monologues. My biggest supporter, of course, my dad, brings her into this store and goes, my baby's going to be in a pageant, make her look pretty and gets her a fancy dress. And then she does this really intense, she says it's like a prelim to the movie Precious, a monologue that ends in her committing suicide. <laughs> she's in middle school and she says the audience just goes silent. And then her dad just starts like whooping it up and being like, yeah, that's my baby. And she was like, it was brutal. But what I think is interesting is she comes in second and Tracy comes in first. And Tracy goes on to represent the state. Yeah. And then Tracy is like, this is it. We have to become stars. We have to go to the Duke Ellington School, which is a performing arts high school where you might've heard of it because like Dave Chappelle went there. So they both audition and practice their monologues for weeks and stuff and only Tracy gets in. And so Taraji thinks this is the end of her acting career, but I find it very interesting. And for anybody young, it doesn't matter what happens in high school because Tracy does not go on to become a famous Oscar nominated actress. It really doesn't matter what happens in high school. Yeah, it's some real Michael Jordan shit. She got cut from the team freshman year, but boy, did she come back swinging. So then she goes to just the public high school, Baloo High School. And she says, I was the good girl gone bad. I laid all my nerdy ways to the wayside, dumbed myself down, stepped away from acting and quickly established myself as the class clown. I was still creative, but now it's in a much more distracting, destructive ways. And so she decides to give up acting altogether and she chooses to go to the Greensboro, North Carolina-based historically black college, North Carolina A&T to study, get this, electrical engineering. Engineering. <laughs> huh. So she goes and fails everything and she doesn't know what to do. She feels... Like she's failed and she calls her dad. She goes, I've never failed anything in my life. Good, he said simply. What do you mean good? I snapped. He says, you had to fall on your face and see that that's not what you were supposed to be doing. Now get your ass back up to DC and enroll in Howard's drama department. Do what you're supposed to be doing. So he is like, of course you're supposed to be an actor, but you had to see that you couldn't not be. Yeah. What a beautiful thing. Sometimes failure is good because it closes a door that you wouldn't have been able to like shut yourself. <laughs> I think it's good advice. If you're afraid of a failure, just either push on, but maybe that's the universe saying there's something else you should be doing. Maybe. Not us. I mean, we failed a ton <laughs> and we just kept fucking pushing forward. No, the door closed. We learned that if, if I sitting here thought I could have had a Britney Spears podcast, I did have a Britney Spears podcast and I know how it went. So when she transfers, she can't transfer right away because she has debt to pay off to 
Carolina A&T before she can get her transcripts released and transferred over to Howard. So she spends a couple years just working. And this is where she talks about her ability to hustle. She says she's been doing it from day one. She would always offer people favors and be like, also that favor is $5. (laughs) She was really into fashion and looking good. And so she learned to do acrylics and her hair all by herself. And then that became a skill that she was able to sell. She had the Taraji Henson basement beauty salon. She's cute in here. She talks about like coming back from college and she had that year where she was trying to make money and just acting financially responsible in a way I think we can all relate to. She saves up money to get a car and then that car just racks up parking tickets and then she'd have to ask her mom to drive her anyway. (laughs) She goes, real talk, you're not winning if you insist you're grown, but you're looking at a boot on your ride from the front seat of your mom's car. Real talk. I agree. I've never had a car, so I was never there, but I definitely had friends who were there and I've had other things similar. For me, it was me thinking I like didn't need my mom's help with apartment stuff and then calling her because I like didn't understand how the light bulb worked and this (laughs) lamp that I had. And she was also singing on a singing barge. It was a dinner barge. Like a dinner, a dinner show barge, a dinner theater barge. A Broadway barge. It's not like an appetizing word to be like, I'm going to go for dinner on the barge. I know. That's why I keep saying it. I'm going to get married on a barge. I would love for you to get married on a barge. So then she gets into Howard. Finally, her credits come through. She transfers and she says, yet hustling isn't always about making the most money or gaming the system. In my profession, it's about putting in the work and perfecting the craft. This I learned on the stages of the Howard University Department of Theater Arts, where the very finest instructors turned out some of the most respected, prolific working actors ever captured on television and film. They would put your ass out. They didn't care if you were cute, if you had long hair, pretty skin, if you were mixed and lighter than a paper bag, if you came from a family that could afford a maid and a chef from a home where ramen noodles were considered fine cuisine. The only thing that mattered was your answer to these questions. Can you fill this space with the truth of this character? Can you build a beautiful set? Can you style the most incredible hair to look exactly like it would have looked in this or that era? Can you do the best makeup? So, I mean, it really is about the skill and the craft and staying. Like she says, no one was there to fuck around. Acting school sounds like boot camp emotionally. Yeah, it always sounds hard. Although this experience sounds way better than Viola Davis's experience at Juilliard. I'd rather be at Howard than Juilliard. So the thing with Howard is they were like churning out genuinely incredible shows. She says that there was this one director and teacher there who, if you got into his plays, you would make money because his plays always got picked up by the Kennedy Center. And she eventually was in one that got brought to do two weeks of shows in Hong Kong. But wait, I want to tell the story about how she got onto it. So it was Professor Mike Malone and the year she started, it was Dreamgirls. And she was new to school and she didn't understand the audition process. It was like a really big deal to be in a play. So she wasn't just going to fresh through the gate audition, but she is a real hustler and she has a great work ethic. And so she's like, well, I want to be a part of this in any way I can be. So she signs up to help with props and she like dedicates her life to the props department. She's going to every rehearsal and the voluntary rehearsals on weekends and rehearsals she's not even supposed to be at. She's learning everything. She's sucking up like a little sponge and she learns everybody's part. And so then whenever they had some like random extra background person that needed something to do, she'd always cough really loudly to be like, I could do it. And one time she coughed so loudly and it made everybody laugh. So Mike Malone is like, okay, fine. It can be you. And so she plays this role that's literally just somebody running across the stage and back and she crushes it. Yeah. The role is a seamstress who is bringing a dress to one of the characters and she's like, okay, so I studied this character. I figured out the motivation. What happens is that they're so excited to deliver this dress to a star. And so she's coming across the stage just over the moon and then the dress gets rejected. And so she leaves the stage devastated. And she's like, I'm going to take that and I'm going to make it a lifestyle. I'm looking at, it's three pages of descriptions. I'm like combing through for a quote. It's literally three pages for what something that's not even in the script. Yeah. 
I mean, she like becomes the seamstress. But when she does it, she gets a huge laugh. Yeah. She walks across the stage and, and gets a fucking applause break. She said, I was on the other side of the curtain, giggling with nervous laughter, floating with excitement when my ears were finally able to focus on the audience's reaction. They were hysterical with laughter. Out of everything that was happening on stage, it was my timing and foolery that they remembered. And then a few weeks later, somebody has to drop out and they were like, all right, we're going to have to hold auditions. And because she had been to so many rehearsals, she knew literally everybody's scene, their lines, their blocking, their choreography. The dimensions of their props. <laughs> she knew everything. So she's like, I can audition. And he's like, well, starting when? And she goes, I have shoes right now. And she like had shoes in her backpack. And he goes, okay. And she just steps up and auditions on the spot and gets it. And then as Ashley was saying, she gets to be a character in it. And Tracy, her friend, is the main character, right? Yeah, she's one of the, I think she's one of the girls. She's Dina, I the think. The dream, the dream girl. I think she's the main I never saw it. But anyway, again, just goes to show it doesn't really matter what you do in college. You can still go on to be a success even if you weren't the star of the play. But yeah, she gets to go to Hong Kong, first class, staying in fancy hotels and she's like I'm going to do this forever. Huge. Oh my god. And then this is my favorite story. One of my favorite memoir stories I've ever heard, I think. So they find out that Spike Lee is coming to Howard to do a seminar and he's also about to do a project called Malcolm X. And so they are like, well, we'll just mob him and give him our headshots and have him hire us. I mean, well, their thought was not even to mob him. Their thought was to show up, become his pals and also slip him headshots. But then when they realized it was going to be hard to have a casual convo, they were like, all right, let's just get those headshots into the... They end up giving it to a member of his entourage. Yeah, like somebody that they knew was not important, but they were just like, this can't hurt, right? So they slipped this guy their headshots. And then a few weeks later, she's in class and Tracy calls the admin. I guess Tracy had already graduated. Yeah. Because Taraji had taken some time off to make up the money for the transcripts. So Taraji's still in school. Tracy calls her and has somebody from like the administration run into her dance class and say, Spike Lee's casting us in his new movie. Taraji doesn't question it. She freaks out. She calls her mom and she's like, I need $75 right now to take a plane up to New York. She's wearing her leotard from dance class still. She gets on the plane, she lands, she goes straight to Lincoln Center and they get there the day of and I don't know what she was expecting, but they were extras, which is like great. But she literally says we were extras, extras. Child, I believe I'd had a starring role. I was so ahead of myself. She's thinking about it now and she's like, he had never seen me act in anything. He hadn't seen my plays that I was doing in college. We had not auditioned for him. She thought she was the star of Malcolm X. (laughs) That's that important delusion that you need that only a father can really instill in you. And then in being extras, they were like, well, if we're going to be extras, we're going to be in this motherfucking movie. And so they get to the front of the scene. They said that there was a fire that happened on set and they cleared everyone from the set and they were like, "Uh uh-uh, we we got our way to the front. We're going to stay here. And then it turned out just to be smoke. There was no actual fire. They say when there's smoke, there's fire, but that's not always true. Sometimes there's literally just smoke. And so they stayed, they got in the front and they... She says you can see her face if you watch the Malcolm X movie. They're right behind Denzel Washington. She even shouts something out from the crowd that's audible. It just goes to show her work ethic though. So they show up to this extra day. I had done my research. I knew that blonde wasn't fashionable in Harlem in the 60s. And if I wanted to get noticed, I'd have to look the part. So she like came with a wig ready to go so that the hairstylist wouldn't have to work harder on her and she could fit right in. They also had long nails, they had acrylics. So they wore gloves, like those fancy... 20s ladies gloves because they were like if the director sees that you have something that's too modern they're going to send you to the back of the pack 
So they came ready to go and she had studied the historical accuracy. That's her prop girl stylings and I teaching. I mean, every character that she's ever been a part of, whether it's for a walking across the stage role or for a starring role that ends up getting nominated for an Oscar, she lives that character. She becomes that character. She is the kind of method actor that doesn't make me want to scream because she, she knows when to start and stop the methoding. Only men don't know when to stop. That's true. So she has one other story about a professor at her school, Professor Katz. Everybody else loved her, but Professor Katz, I gave Professor Katz hell when I was at Howard and she gave it right back to me in spades. And Professor Katz would say, they may be impressed, but I am not. When it came to the craft, she said I was more of a con artist than an actress. Go deeper, she would yell, interrupting my class monologues to chastise me for leaning to on tricks to grab the attention of my peers. So I guess Taraji loved to get laughs. She loved to do big energy. So she was doing a lot of yelling in her monologues. And Professor Katz would always say, don't stop thinking just because someone wrote the words on a page. You're not a robot. You still have to think. And she would always encourage her to go deeper and to like, I mean, the becoming of the role that we were just talking about. She credits that all to Katz. And she says at one point when she was at Howard, she was part of a group that wrote a play that did great. It was sold out. She was the star of it. And when she went back, she said, yeah, take that Vera Katz. You're always giving me all that flack in your class, but look what I did. I'm all they talk about ego much. And then the next time she takes her class, she finally gets it. And at the end of her years there, she does a really restrained, intense monologue. And Professor Katz says, all that time, I thought you were fighting and not listening. She said quietly. We reconciled. And years later at an award ceremony where she was being honored and I was a host, I apologized to her. I know I give you hell, I said, but you're a huge reason why I'm so successful in the business. You challenged me to be a thinker, to always stay alive and be in the moment, to respect the craft. So this is what you were talking about earlier. This is her giving you the moment, making you laugh a little, coming at it with an energy and a force, and then coming down the hill and saying, and here's how it affected the rest of my life. And here's who like this person was. It's very, you get the full picture. She has a ghostwriter that is credited on the cover of this, Deneen Milner. And I think that you can see the writerliness of this book that she really allowed her ghostwriter to do a good job. Mm-hmm. Because I think in that story, it's such a good example of how she's able, you're fully able to imagine 20-year-old Taraji being full of herself and thinking she's hot shit and being able to like get everybody's attention and be funny and cute and loud and stuff. And she's able to tell you that from that perspective while still giving you the sense that she recognizes now how wrong she was. Yeah. And the gratitude and the lessons and we're getting all of that in that quick story. And I think that is what makes a good memoir to be able to see both sides of somebody's growth. Yes. Do you know what else is something I really enjoy feeling every side of? Hmm. Soft bedding. (laughs) Here's the thing about really comfortable sheets that a lot of people don't know. Thread count is a myth, okay? The number of threads does not matter. It's the quality of threads. A bazillion bad threads, that's not going to do much for you. Bolin Branch uses the best 100% organic cotton threads on earth for superior softness and a better night's sleep. Their sheets aren't just buttery, breathable, and impossibly soft to start. They get softer with every wash. The longer you have them, the more laundry days you treat yourself to. Baby, the better these sheets get. Claire and I both have the Bowling Branch signature sheets, and they come in so many colors. You can do a neutral, you can do a pop, you can do truly whatever you want to make your bedroom whatever you've dreamed it to be. You can also get a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on every single order. Get 20% off site-wide during the annual summer event happening now, only at BolinBranch.com. This is their best offer of the year before the holidays, so act now. That's BolinBranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com for 20% off site-wide. And now that you're getting a unbearably comfortable eight hours of sleep every single night, it's time to focus on health from your 
food. Freshly lets you skip the meal prep stress. They'll handle lunch and dinner, and you can take advantage of their limited time 4th of July sale. You can skip the meal prep stress and you're not even stuck with fast food chains or frozen dinners because Freshly gives you never frozen fresh meals prepared in three minutes. Delicious nutrient packed meals are delivered right to your door and you can choose from over 50 options like steak, peppercorn, multi-serve sides like masterful mac and cheese, or the new plant-based meals. Skip grocery shopping, skip dirty dishes. Your meals arrive cooked and fresh every single week. All you have to do is heat them up and it takes less than three minutes. Make summer dinners stress-free with Freshly. Right now, you can get $125 off your first five orders at Freshly.com slash worm. That's $125 off at Freshly.com slash worm. I feel like there are a few necessities in this life. There's, you know food, sleep, and motherfucking love, baby. What is love if not someone to sleep and eat with? <laughs> Taraji P. Henson has had one true love at the time of writing this book. <laughs> Something Taraji does in this book that does make me laugh is she was in a movie called Baby Boy and she references it in every chapter. She'll be like, we had a kind of love that you only see in movies like Baby Boy. She'll be like, I experienced grief, the kind of grief that was really only shown in Baby Boy. <laughs> I was eating breakfast a lot like the characters did in Baby Boy. (laughs) So she says they had young, dumb, and out of control love. They had hot tempers, youth, and experience. The truth is we didn't stand a chance. She says, I wanted a forever love with Mark. If that man had said he was ready to have babies and get married, I would have had a pastor and an obstetrician lined up within the hour. I mean, she's like 19 at this time. Yeah, they meet when she's 17 and I think he's 21. They meet at a movie theater. They lock eyes. He's handsome. She's beautiful. They can't stop chatting. The first time they kiss, they're like in a Denny's parking lot and he does a backflip, which, hold on. I have to find the exact quote. That is crazy. She goes, we were in a Denny's. He kissed me, smiled, then took off the aisle of the parking lot and did a series of cartwheels on the asphalt. When he somersaulted for me, I fell for him hard. And I said, oh my God, a girl after my own heart. Anyway, she says in terms of getting married and having babies, he was not quite ready for that. And to be fair, they were very young. I mean, she was in high school. So basically what happens is after high school, she goes off to college. In her mind, she's young and in love. They're going to make it work long distance. And she's like, I look back now and realize that the minute I left, he was pulling away. When she comes back to go to Howard and transfer, she's like, well, we'll fix it now. Now we're together. But he's already over it. He's moved on. She keeps trying to get him to stay with her. At one point... At one point, they break up for one year. And during that year, he gets two other women pregnant a few months apart. So then they get back together and now he's a father of two. But she loves him so much. At one point he said to her, let me explain it to you like this. He said, you're like an old favorite bag. When I don't want to use it anymore, I put it away on the shelf. I don't think that that's nice. It's not nice, but nevertheless. I think it's his way of saying, I know you'll always be there and I can come and go as I please. A year later, they end up getting back together. It's still very up and down. I mean, she tells this story about on Valentine's Day being so mad that... He doesn't call her. So she like goes over to his house and sees in the window that he's with one of his children and her mom. And she freaks out, starts pounding on the door. They threaten to call the cops. And she runs away and she goes, of course, as an adult now, I realize there's probably a lot of reasons that he would be speaking to the mother of his child. Anyway, they end up getting pregnant. Yeah, so she finds out she's pregnant when she's a junior at Howard and in a good place, paying my way through school, living in my own apartment, making good money as a supervisor on the Odyssey, which is the barge, (laughs) another dinner cruise ship that operated on the waters of the Potomac. What? Potomac. (laughs) Is that what it's like talking to me? I've never been on the receiving end. That's insane. You sounded insane. 
it wasn't even a question if they were going to keep the baby. She's all gung-ho about it. And he really recommits to their relationship. She talks about how in her family, there's a lot of really successful relationships and there's a lot of really beautiful family units. And she thinks about how much her mom did for her. And she says when she fantasized about having this baby, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to dress my little daughter up in dresses. It was like, I cannot wait for the early mornings to make the breakfast, to do the work. Like to provide a home for her baby. She felt deeply maternal and was very excited to, yeah, exactly, provide a home and be a mother. And so she was excited and... And he recommits to the relationship. She says, truly, he was an angel. He made sure I ate, picked me up from and took me to my doctor's appointments and class and grocery shopping, rubbed my back when it was sore and fell down to his knees right beside me when I prayed for our baby. He was always quick with bringing the fun to it all. Pillow fights were standard. Playful name calling essential. He kept me laughing, content. He even started showing up to family functions with me, something he'd never done in all the years we'd been together. Her mom, of course, is heartbroken. Her mom had put the fear of God in her about getting pregnant before she was an adult, before she was married because of how hard it had been for her to be a single mom. And she was like, I am an adult. Yeah, she said she knew, too, the pressure that both the mother and her child feels but they're the ones that everybody's whispering about when they're the ones carrying the burdens of stereotypes and low expectations and the avalanche of statistics that insist kids from broken homes won't make it. Broken is in quotations there. So when she tells her mom, her mom's crying and she goes... Why are you crying? I can't have negativity. I won't have it. This baby is not a disease. You're up here acting like I'm 15 and in high school. I'm 24 years old, in college, paying my own way, and I'm on the dean's list. There are other things you could be freaking out about. This ain't it. She said, I don't need anything from you except your unconditional support. I'm having a happy, healthy baby, and I'm thrilled about it. And if you and your family aren't down for that, I'm not coming around. So she really, I mean, as soon as she gets pregnant with this baby, she's like, this baby is my family now, and I will choose it over everything. I thought she was going to come out of the phone and choke me. You don't talk to black mamas like that. Instead, she dried up those tears real quick. And so then she's like, well, now the thing I really have to do is tell my father. And she's scared because at this point, he is Baptist, Reformed Baptist, second again, try again Baptist. Yeah, try again. (laughs) He was a try again Christian. (laughs) If first you don't succeed. (laughs) Anyways, she's a petrified. She calls her stepmom and is like, I'm going to have to tell him about this. And she's like, Lord, be with you and make sure I'm not in the room. (laughs) What is that called? Born again. Born again. (laughs) Okay, sorry, thank you. Yeah, so she calls the stepmom and then then what happens? Tell him. So the stepmom is like, all right, I'll be behind that reinforced wall. So she calls her dad and he's over the moon. He is stoked as hell. She tells him over the phone and he is so supportive of this situation. He says, this is going to be your strength right here. It ain't going to stop you. Yeah, she says within seconds, he's like at her doorstep to take her out to breakfast. He cannot wait. So her son is named Marcel. And even before she said the way Marcel affected her life, I was like, this is going to be her motivation. This is going to be the thing that like drives her to succeed, even though she already would have. But having to create a life for her child, I like really feel like it's kind of a power within her. Yeah, and she says, he was right about her dad. Every moment with my baby in my belly made me stronger and more focused. I was exactly what I told my mother I would be, a happy, fat, pregnant woman who got salty only when she was hungry. Went to her teachers and she was like, listen, I'm pregnant. I'm still going to do the plays. Don't fuck with me. She says, look here, don't you bench me because I'm pregnant. And she gets a big role in a musical while pregnant and they just rewrite the role to make it make sense for a woman who's pregnant. And people thought that she was wearing a prosthetic. They were like, oh, the pregnant character dancing and leaping all over the stage she's wearing a belly. I don't know how she moves with that belly glued to her body. And she was like, this baby isn't glued. (laughs) It's stuck. (laughs) I swallowed it. 
<laughs> and then she gives birth. It was beautiful and it stayed that way for a while too. Mark was an attentive dad in the beginning, picking up and dropping off the baby while I took my classes and went to work, making sure that I had what I needed to juggle the demands of both school and my job while parenting a newborn. That's a lot of goddamn work. Jeez. Oh my God. But the novelty wore off and life got real again. His temper started getting the best of him and the closer we became, the more complex things got, the more violent he became. So they started just fighting a lot. Just It was a lot of screaming and arguing. And then one night it becomes physical. I whooped, he whooped. Then the next thing I knew, Mark's balled up fist was coming straight from my face. I fell onto the bed crying and holding my mouth, blood seeping off my lips and across my teeth, washing a nasty bitter metallic taste over my tongue. Droplets splashed across my shoes, the dark red slowly creeping into the fibers of my suede boots. Marcel's screams rose into the air, thick and piercing. It was just like the scene from Baby Boy. <laughs> Sorry, she really does, like she really references Baby Boy a lot. So she calls her dad and says, "Daddy, I need you." And she says he shows up in fourteen seconds flat, and he marches across the room to Mark, who's packing his bags because she had told him get the fuck out. Yeah, and she is waiting for her dad to just beat the shit out of him, and instead he just talks to him. My father eerily was the picture of calm. He walked slowly towards the closet where Mark was packing with his hands in his pockets. And when Mark was in his line of sight, daddy planted himself on the hardwood floor, towering over my soon to be ex and stared down at him. You don't have to put hands on her. He said finally, slowly, which surprised me all my life. After all, daddy was the one you called when you were ready to launch the nuclear bomb. You didn't ask for his help with inconsequential things because when he arrived on the scene, his guns were already blazing. Survivors weren't an option. I expected my father to rip Mark limb from limb. Daddy later told me that despite his newly Christian ways, he'd had a sixth sense that Mark had hit me and had actually plotted a way to kill Mark in the moments it took him to get to my place. I literally was going to walk in, snap his neck, throw him over the balcony and call the cops, he said. I'd planned on telling the police it was self-defense. Look at my daughter's mouth. But I prayed to God all the way over here. My grandson was in this room and I couldn't take his father. I understand it's hard out there for a man, daddy told Mark, but you're better than that. This is my daughter you hit. She's a woman. Real men don't do that. Mark stood there and cried while my father gave him a heart-to-heart -heart speech about how he'd done the same thing to my mother and how it ruined his relationship with her and had obliterated his chances of being a full-time father to the love of his life, me. I knew firsthand that this was something my father had long regretted. And over the years, after he cleaned himself up and got himself together and found God, he made a point of apologizing to both my mother and even her husband for laying hands on her. Wow. Yeah. I mean, she says she didn't want an apology from Mark, though. She said, I knew if it happened once, it would happen again and again. His punch knocked me into reality. So as much as she loved him and as much as she wanted to watch him change, she, she knew that she couldn't do that from inside of a relationship with him. So she moved in with her dad. He says, that's a seed I sowed, my father would say days later after Mark was gone. I knew I would pay for what I did to your mother, that it would come back through one of my babies. This is my fault. But she says it wasn't anybody's fault and I was no one's victim. So she leaves and she says, you know, a lot of people will think I became another statistic, a baby mama, but it wasn't about me being an irresponsible woman with a child. For me, it was about making a sound parenting decision that would ultimately save our lives. And I had to say, I mean, we've read a lot of memoirs now and I think to be able to leave like that after the first instance of physical abuse is- It's enormous strength. It's like one of the hardest things. I haven't seen anyone else do it even. I mean, it's incredibly courageous and difficult and I'm very impressed with the way that she was able to draw a line like that because a lot of, it's very hard. It's very hard. I mean, she loved him so much. You can really feel the amount of love that was there. And she also talks about her son and she wants to make it very clear how Marcel came from a couple that loved each other so much. She says, though Mark and I weren't actively trying to have a baby together, Marcel is not a mistake. He was and always will be wanted. She never saw her baby as a roadblock to her goals or a strike against my ability to do exactly what I planned to do with my life. I simply started planning and dreaming about ways I could get what I wanted out of life while I had a baby on my hip. 
Yeah, she talks about how vicious people are towards single mothers. She says, choosing to be a single mother, even such dire circumstances, still opened me up to severe criticism. Mention that you're a single mom and all too many of us still have to cut through a thick, grisly layer of stigma before we're given our proper due. I have to say, I'm consistently amazed at how personally people take it when a black single mom gets some shine for being a good mother to her children sans the ring. Everyone, black people included, reserve a special kind of vitriol for us single moms calling us and our children out of our names with absolutely no regard for the fact that we can be as smart, beautiful, and accomplished in our own own right and as passionate about our babies and our roles as mamas as any married mother what she has to take on the chin being a single mom so she's like so I'm also going to get what I can get the amount of times that she uses the single mom card to kind of sway people on certain decisions I love that Yeah, she says, having my son gave me laser sharp focus. That is the miracle of single motherhood. It is not easy to raise a human being with a partner, but doing so alone requires a Herculean effort that is all muscle and grit and sacrifice built up with repetitive sets of sacrifice. Whatever you gain, whatever you earn, you give to your baby and you work triple hard to show your child, not anyone else, that moving forward, no matter how many tiny steps is possible. This is a single mother's love. So now she's a single mother and she is determined to graduate. She's living with her dad and she goes to the social service office to get on public assistance. And I mean, I'm really proud of her for doing that. It was just like the right call to be able to keep her family fed and for her to graduate and for her to keep her life on track. She says, I'm not ashamed of this, not even for a second. I've been working since age 14 and since age 16 paying taxes into the system, which was designed in part specifically to help families like mine sustain themselves while they did what they had to do to get back on their feet. Public assistance gave me the support my family needed. Sure enough, I graduated. In May 1995, in my cap and gown with Marcel in my arms to collect my bachelor's degree in fine arts. This is a perfect example of like why society should have a safety net because you invest in the citizens of where you are and like now look at how much she's been able to accomplish because everybody needs help at some point. Everybody needs help at some and point. Just because you don't have like a parents or a family that can help you immediately doesn't mean like you shouldn't get a little help. It's and not- then she talks about when she was there doing the interviews and getting getting everything in order, the amount that people, like the look that they give you thinking like, oh, you think you're going to be off of this in a couple months? You're not. It's like, why? Why would you come at it with that attitude? So she graduates. She starts working full time. She's getting her money together. She's making a good money and raising her son, living in her father's house in the basement. And one day he says to her, what are you still doing in Maryland? He asked me one day while I sat at the kitchen table feeding Marcel. I was in my work clothes, ready to rush out for the evening shift with an exclusive focus on squaring my baby away before I hit the door. What do you mean, I asked. I got a job. Yeah, yeah, he said, waving his hand dismissively. But didn't you graduate with a degree in acting? Ain't no acting jobs in Maryland. How you expect to catch fish on dry land? So then he comes up with this idea. He goes, you need to go where the fish are. And she's like, what are you talking about? You got to go to LA. And so it turns out in LA, she has a cousin who has a baby who grew up watching Taraji do performances and got the acting bug and became like a child actor and was casting something out in LA. Minor adjustments. On the UPN, do you remember that? Yeah. Shout out to the UPN. The cousin and his mom were out in LA. He was acting on this show and the dad had already called them to be like, Taraji and Marcel are going to come stay with you. And then he kind of is like, Taraji, wouldn't it be a good idea if you went and stayed with your cousin? And then she's like, yeah, he's really good at making you think his ideas are your ideas. So she goes out to California. She brings Marcel. So she gets a temp job and immediately converts it to a semi-permanent job because she plays the single mother card. And she's like, I need stability. I need my whoever's watching my kid to know exactly where I am at all times. I need to know what time I'm going to get home. Like, don't you want to help a single mother out? 
and the temp lady is like fine something about Taraji that I think is really admirable she works so hard and she is so talented and because of that she never questions doing what needs to be done yeah do you know what I mean I think like she's like I never felt ashamed having to go on food stamps because she knew she worked hard her whole life she was in a moment where she needed help she talks about like putting on the tears and like using all of her acting abilities to cry on phones to get what she needs but it's because she knows she deserves to get what she wants and she just kind of has to play the system a little bit yeah and I feel like doing what needs to be done and like asking for what you want when it's not an out of reach thing it's just a lot of people have like I don't know like a lot of people have a really damaging amount of pride for like deeply inconsequential things and by a lot of people I mean me (laughs) yeah I get being like you're like it's really good to ask for help I'm like who's not asking for help but you I guess yeah me So she moves into an apartment. Again, this is the Ashley question of how come back in the day leases didn't exist? So she has a lease. Well, she answers the question here. She gets a studio apartment and she feels not good about it. And she says, looking back, I think the reason I had this horrible feeling is because I had wanted to at least give Marcel what I had been given from my single mother which was my own bedroom. So when we moved into the studio apartment, she says, I think I felt really horrible about myself because I wasn't able to give him a bedroom and it just like make it feel like a home really. But really, I think the uneasy feeling is that she was accidentally living in a deeply unsafe apartment. Yeah, she's like, I later found out from my coworkers that I was living in one of the sketchiest buildings in the sketchiest neighborhoods in LA. So she breaks down in front of her landlord, starts crying and says she has a family emergency just to break the lease. And then she moves in in a new apartment above a friend. She has two bedrooms. It has a family. There's another little boy in the complex that he can play with. So it all works out perfect. And she gets a good apartment for her and her son at the time. She gets the car and she just starts taking off. She starts acting. Somehow she gets a hold of a manager. I mean, she tells the story at the beginning and she just shows up and she says she had so much pizzazz. It was Halle Berry's manager at the time. And he was like, listen, lady, I got no time for you. And she was just so confident and had so much energy to her that he finally says, fine, if you can do a monologue for next week and knock my socks off, I'll sign you. And so she goes, crushes the monologue and he takes the socks off and hands them to her. And he's like, all right, you're signed. She doesn't get into sort of the plot point by plot point of her career. But she does explain how she became SAG eligible, which I think is a huge step of it. At that time, you needed to be an extra three times and then pay a dues. $1,100 dues. She explained, she's like, well, my cousin was in that show. And so they were able to get me extra work on two episodes. And then she had another friend who's able to get her extra work on a different show. Third Rock from the Sun. Do you remember that guy? I recall... So then she did three extra roles and then she like chipped away at her dues and then she was a SAG eligible actor. And then from there, baby, it's gravy. I'm just kidding. It's not. It's really hard. But much like Denise Richards, although a huge percent of actors don't work, she was going to be one of the percents that does work. So then she gets into a chapter called Raising a Black Boy. Yeah, she talks about the way that strangers just ooh and ah over her adorable baby. He was a rock star. The whole world loves a sweet, chubby brown boy until they don't. When they get some length on those legs and those baby curls morph into a massive nap, suddenly everything is new. Where once admirers saw cuteness, there's only a threatening stereotype. And all the brightness that made those adorable little black boys irresistible is overshadowed by a dark cloud of assumptions, disdain, and yes, racism. I mean, she talks about the first time Marcel experiences overt racism and it's in kindergarten. Literally, he's five years old and he's told by another boy in school that he can't play because he's black. And so... Taraji marches over to the mother and says, what are you teaching him? Because I know he doesn't just think that. 
And then she gets into raising him in, I mean, LA. So she's doing everything she can to send him to these private schools that are predominantly white. And she talks about how hard it is to be the mother of a black boy in these white private schools and going to these student teacher meetings and feeling like he is not being given the fair chance that everyone else is given, that if there's a problem, it's his fault. They're criticizing him quicker than anyone else. He's not being given chances. And I think at one point, they tell her that her son needs to repeat a grade or that he couldn't handle going on. And so she just takes him out of that school and says, I'm going to send him to another school. And even though the other school was equally white, she said at least that administration felt like they cared enough to try to combat the racism of teachers and the system. And so she talks later about all the the racism that he experienced even in these schools and feeling bad that he would come home and say, I don't like school. And she would just be like, you just have to study harder. Like school's important. And now she goes, now that I know what he was going through, I'm sad that he was there in the first place. Yeah. And there were times that she talked to him. She said, just tell them that they're the ignorant ones. You know what you are to them, a threat because you're intelligent, you're athletic. You stay in those books and you keep winning. It's killing them that you come from all this adversity. No daddy. For a while, there, no money and you're still winning. You have the power. So she really is there for him. I mean, it's just, I think that like the thing with raising children is like, you can be there for them constantly and they're still going to go through things that they have to work through. And all you can do is either as a support system when they are ready to need you. And I think that she is that. She talks about her first experience with blatant racism, her freshman year, North Carolina at A&T, when my friends and I got caught up in a massive riot during the Greek Fest on Labor Day week in Virginia. All these kids from her school went to Virginia Beach for their spring break. And as she says, doing nothing different than what the white kids would do, what any other frat would do. What any other, what spring break is. Yeah, because they were black, this town had gone into like lockdown and they had all of these police. They brought in the National Guard at one point. The police were in riot gear. There was rumors that They were working in tandem with the KKK. Hotels made all their prices higher. There was all these rules that only three kids could be in a store at a time. I mean, they were treating these black kids like criminals and they hadn't done anything. And so, of course, tensions mounted and it ended up, there ended up being a riot about it. And so she was there and she said after that, it actually sent her on a journey of discovery to really like look at her blackness and study her history that she had never felt compelled to do before because she had been in predominantly black areas. So she was never faced with that. Yeah. And then she talks about just how much he needed like a father and a father figure. So he had, after a few years, Mark became a much bigger presence in Marcel's life. And then she also had her dad who was always a presence in Marcel's life. She would send Marcel back there for a few weeks over the summer, just the way she had gone to spend a few weeks over the summer with her grandparents. Cause she like felt that he really needed some sort of man in his life to help guide him. Yeah, she talks about how hard it is to raise a son. I mean, just some of the conversation alone, it's hard to teach your son how to pee standing up. It's hard to teach him about condoms. She said that one time he walked in to the bathroom without knocking and she was changing a pad and he was like, what the fuck? He started crying because he was six. He thought she was like bleeding out. <laughs> so then she tells a story of Christmas 2002. She was home in DC for the holidays. All of the children were there, as were their mothers, and my friend Pam and her husband, Mark's best friend. From the moment I walked in the door, something felt off. I couldn't put my finger on what it was, but when Mark's eyes met mine, I had a weird, dark feeling. They have a really beautiful Christmas together, and she tells a story about how Marcel and Mark are playing tic-tac-toe. The game wasn't going well. Marcel was yelling, upset that he'd lost several rounds in a row to his father. And he says, let me tell you something, son. Don't let your anger control your life the way it did mine. What he was saying was practically word for word what my father had told Marcel over the years as he struggled with his own anger. I'll never forget the sound of Mark's words or that look in his eyes as he talked to our son. Love was there. That would be the last Christmas Marcel would see his father. January 25th, 2003, I got an early morning phone call from Mark's mother that woke me out of my sleep. The second I heard her voice, the way she said my name and how her words shook in her throat, I knew Mark was gone. Mark was killed last night, she said. 
So then she gets to a part that I think is very vulnerable about parenthood. She says, I too am culpable for my son's emotional fragility. I know that. It was while I was away filming my role as Joss Carter on the CBS show Person of Interest that his anger came to a head. So she goes to New York for two years to film and she has her mom go home and live with the son. She's like, I needed the money to take care of my kid. High school was $30,000 a year and there was uniform and books. It's very expensive. And she's like, I did my best. I went back and forth as much as I could. I Skyped with him regularly, kept in touch with his teachers. Still, my son needed me to be physically present. He wasn't happy. I wasn't happy. My mama wasn't happy. It was the hardest time of our lives. The little boy, Marcel, needed his mother more than I knew precisely because I wasn't there to help him unpack and work through the emotions that came with being fatherless. I mean, that is a hard time to go through as a kid. Your mom is working in, across the country and your dad just died. And you can see, she's like, I thought I was doing the best thing for him. And her mom was obviously such a great mom, but it's not the same. And I do think he needed a parent. Yeah. And I do think we see this a lot with, I mean, parenting in terms of Hollywood. I think like we saw this with Garcelle, there's a lot that comes with like, okay, if I just provide the best life possible, then my kid will have everything I never had. And it's just like, yes. However, your presence is also a major factor. And it's just the hard part about being an actor is that if you have to be on set somewhere, you're, mm-hmm. you're physically gone a lot, but the money is good. And so you're like, what does a kid need more? Yeah. They ended up going to therapy together. And she said, accusations of my not being home with him full-time flew. And I was neither prepared nor willing to swallow that pill. I didn't have a choice, I'd yelled. And then in another session, I had to come clean to him on why his father and I broke up. That was a tough one. Until then, I'd kept to myself the details of his dad verbally abusing me and hitting me because I didn't want to sully Marcel's image of him. But in therapy, it was clear he needed to know why we broke up so that he could begin the long road toward closure. The pain in his eyes and his rage in response to the revelation hurt me to my core. But why would you hit my mother? He yelled, punching the pillows, decorating the therapist's couch where we sat. I think it's really beautiful that she and her son go to therapy together. I mean, she just, she sees problems and she's like, all right, how are we going to attack them? It's not like, well, this is the situation that we live in in no she's like we're gonna grow we're gonna figure it out this is such like a vulnerable chapter and she talks about how it all comes to a head one night when she's 17 they get into such a huge fight because he's been smoking weed in the house and she has him call his friends and she kicks him out of the house and takes his phone and then the next morning he comes home head hung low broken he had no idea I had it in me to put him out but he understood it when I broke it down to him you're not going to be here driving me crazy I said calmly as we sat at the dining room table trying to work out our issues I'm not going to die of worry over you when I know I've done my job you have no other choice but to get it together or die trying I really do not know what else to tell you besides that I mean it ends happily she says raising Marcel has been a journey one that I've loved him through with prayer therapy candid talk and love he came through on the other side my son is smiling again he's trying to be a rapper he was talking to a bunch of the men on set of Empire, Danny Strong, Terrence Hauer. Man, Danny said, you did a good job. He's got his head on straight. And he eventually understands what she went through as well. He says, mom, you loved me when I didn't want to love myself. It's something when your child finally understands. So then she has a section called Breathing Life into Art where she talks about the relationship between art, life, what it takes to be an actor, how to build a character. I mean, and she, like we said before, just builds these motherfucking characters. I think right now, if you approached her and were like, who is Yvette from Baby Boy? She could just be it. So it starts off talking about the death of her father, which of course, I mean, you see how much she loves and appreciates her father and how important he was to her, especially after he had gotten clean. It was a rainy, bitterly cold for a February night in 2006 when my father started taking that slow, torturous walk toward the final day. 
said, so furious was the loss, so immense that the only way I thought possible to deal, to breathe, to put one foot in front of the other after he passed was to bury my feelings about his death six feet down in my gut where no one could access it. And, and a lot of this chapter and a lot of the characters she plays in the years following his death sort of are her reconciling with his death. She yeah. ends up playing a lot of characters that deal with death. She's in Benjamin Button playing a character who works in like an old folks home. So the reason she ends up unpacking that and dealing with her dad's death is because she's like in order to play the roles that I want to be playing, I can't have part of me closed off. She says, my heart wouldn't cooperate. It was shattered. Unbeknownst to my family and friends, I'd slipped into a deep depression, rendering me incapable of dealing with my father's death, particularly after witnessing him pass away. Through my tears, all I could visualize was his face in the moments when he was throwing up blood. I was desperate to know if he knew how much I loved him and whether I should have told him one more time. I was in so much pain. It seared every part of my being and I couldn't figure out how to deal with the agony. So then she gets into Benjamin Button and while she is working on Benjamin Button, which is the movie she takes right after he passes away, her cousin dies and she says she can't go be with him because ironically her character dies on set the day he dies in real life and then she can't go to the funeral because her character is shooting a funeral the day her cousin's funeral is taking place yeah so she can't go to it and there is this like very spiritual moment where her left hand prosthetic is acting up and then she finds out that at the funeral rigor mortis had set in and there was a problem with her cousin's left hand and she's like just spiritually my character connected i mean she talks a lot about what it took to get into the character of suge and hustle and flow and how she is like a true study of humanity and she likes to go to the park and watch people exist she went down to Tennessee and just watched people. And she feels a lot of responsibility to give each character like a backstory and compassion and understand. She writes, acting is communication, not only person to person, but soul to soul, a physical, emotional, and certainly spiritual expression. When I get it right, it is life itself. I think this is what distinguishes me, what makes me a different kind of actress. I have the gift of being able to see what sometimes neither the creator nor the director can see. This is what an actor is supposed to do. We are not robots, but humans who, if we're worth our salt, see beyond the page and deep into the character's soul. I gravitate towards characters like Suge, Yvette, Cookie, and Queenie to give them some kind of royalty they wouldn't necessarily see in their own circumstance, to illuminate them and tell their stories that the audience knows what I know, they matter. I do think she does. <laughs> like, I'll give it Me to her. I, like, I think she's an incredible actress. And No, I completely agree. She goes further into the specifics of some of her characters later. She writes, when one commits to the truth, it becomes impossible to ignore both the character and her story. It's the magic where the best stories lie. I learned the value of committing to my truth from my father, who in my eyes is one of the greatest storytellers of my time. She then has a whole chapter about all of the actors she admires and she talks about Richard Pryor being the first person on a screen that she really understood went deeper. Sana Lathan she talks about in Love and Basketball. I love that movie so much. I mean she just has this whole chapter in honor of all of these actors and actresses that she loves. So then she talks about on being a black woman in Hollywood and she starts with the story of the curious case of Benjamin Button. She is doing this film where she was invited for the part. So she did not even have to audition because she had just come out of Hustle and Flow, which was critically acclaimed. I mean, she auditioned, but she it was like an invite audition where like she was the only one there. And, and they booked her on the spot, yeah. It was hers for the taking. She had to do an audition as a formality because David Fincher had never seen her, but it was her role. But then after she gets booked, her manager calls her and says, the best we can do for you is in the mid hundred thousands. She's expecting high six figures and they come in with the lowest that still makes it six. Yes. And she would have to pay for her own lodging in 
New Orleans where they were filming, which I didn't even know was legal. I thought I don't, SAG was like, give them a house. So it was three months. So she had to pay for a place for herself to stay for three months. And if you think about like a movie, that's like a year of your life. So, okay. I don't want to sit here and say that two or $300,000 isn't a lot of money, but after a manager takes his cut, after an agent takes their cut, and then you're paying for your own lodging on top of everything you're paying to live in LA, which is an extremely expensive town. This is a movie headlined by Kate Blanchett and Brad Pitt, where she made probably like $60,000 by Brad Pitt. Where he made millions and millions of dollars. She said she was making 2% of what he was making. And she says that a white actress who I think was also in Hustle and Flow with her, I don't know who it is because she doesn't name her, but she says she got similar critical acclaim as I got for Hustle. And then she got as much as Taraji got in Benjamin Button, this woman got on an indie flick. And she's like, that just goes to show you that I'm in this big budget blockbuster that went on to get Oscar noms and I'm making what a white woman who has my exact resume or has my exact critical acclaim is coming from the same stepping stone as getting in a low budget movie. And she says... Demanding and holding out for half a million in a much talked about film starring one of the biggest stars in the game could have cost me. The black actress who worked alongside her in the same movie that brought her the same accolades, my job. The math really is pretty simple. There are way more talented black actresses than there are intelligent, meaningful roles for them. And we're consistently charged with diving for the crumbs of the scraps lest we starve. This is exactly how a studio can get away with paying a person whose name is third on the call sheet of a big budget film less than 2% what it's paying the person whose name is listed first. I knew the stakes. No matter how talented, no matter how many accolades my prior work had received, if I pushed for more money, I'd be replaced and no one would so much as blink an eye. So I took my little check, booked myself a small efficiency suite at the local embassy suites and got my ass to work. And she talks about how for a little bit she really stewed in her anger at, I mean, really being disrespected. And then she decides on this mission, make it so they never ever forget you and then go claim what's yours. So she's like, I'm just going to own the shit out of this role. And then whatever comes next, I'm going to come in with power. So she does this role and she comes out with an Oscar nom in it. Everybody's coming up to her and saying, you're killing it. Even the studio executives were flying in with the news that my work had the Academy members buzzing. It's you once said, they're focused on you. So she goes out, she wakes up and it's true. She gets a nomination. And then she talks about how crazy it is, the press tour. She's like, from that point on, everything is first class and being flown everywhere every night. There's another press event, red carpet event. It's crazy. And then of course she gets to the Oscars and it goes to Penelope Cruz. You know, I made a point of reminding myself that the Oscar or Emmy or any other fancy award I might earn for my performances, while nice, could never be my end game. They could open a few doors, but they guarantee neither success nor financial surplus nor the meaty roles that stretch and honor the talent, particularly if you're a black woman. Those pieces of metal cannot begin to speak for the gift that God gave me and what it personally represents. Only the work does. The next day, my phone wasn't ringing. It was as if the entire world had stopped spinning and everyone who had been sticking a microphone in my face, calling my name and begging me to stand in the bright lights had completely forgotten about me. I welcomed the solace. Nothing made me happier than take a beat and lay around the house in complete solitude. Then Tyler Perry calls her and he offers her the starring role of a movie that he's working on and gives her the salary that she's worth. And she says... It was he who gave me a fair wage to star in his movie, which ultimately raised my quote. The baseline pay I could negotiate going into his subsequent movie deals. Get your money, he said. It was because of him, not an Oscar nomination, that I never had to take another movie or project at the bottom of six figures. 
And then she takes a minute to talk and say, I'm happy when black women win. The significance is important to the whole. If nothing else, Viola Davis's Emmy win for her role in How to Get Away with Murder got that first black woman to ever win thing out of the way so that everybody could stop harping on it. She just has a few pages honoring kind of all of the black actresses in Hollywood right now and how much she respects and loves them. She also talks about, so when we read Viola Davis's memoir, she talks about really having to take a stand for there being a scene in the pilot episode of How to Get Away with Murder where her character removes her wig. And Taraji writes about that scene as something that just blew her the fuck away. It really is interesting to read this from someone else's perspective. I mean, she spends two pages just raving about Viola Davis in that role. I'm here to say, right hand held high, that her work that night was so thoughtful, so truthful, so damn genius. I rewound the scene over and over again, screaming from my gut each time she finished stripping away her layers and stared at her authentic, natural, beautiful black self in the mirror. She says, truly, Viola is a gift. I mean, she loves her friends so much. She does. And then she tells this story, which blew my mind. She talks about how the movie St. Vincent, which starred Bill Murray and Melissa McCarthy, had a character that was written by Theodore Melfi, the screenwriter and director specifically for Taraji Henson. He saw her. He said, oh, I have the perfect role for her. The people above refused to green light a black woman in that role. Yeah. It ended up going to Naomi Watts, who won a Screen Actors Guild nomination for her work. It was a meaty gig. I would have loved it. Alas, I could not get served at that particular restaurant. And then that same writer does come back with another role and it is her character in Hidden Figures and he's directing this movie and he's like, listen, this one's yours. She says maybe that was like the universe's way of protecting me because I had just played a pregnant sex worker. I don't want to start having that be the only role I get cast for. Yeah. She talks about Cookie and she says, hell, I was scared and leery of her in the beginning too, but I quickly came to embrace Cookie because she is to some extent me. I'm that girl with whom the everyday woman identifies. I'm that struggle. Hell, I'm the American dream. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I didn't study at Juilliard. I didn't grow up in a mansion. I came from the goddamn hood and put myself through Howard University. I studied Shakespeare and August Wilson until I made something of myself. That's the story of every girl who goes to work every day, punching in at nine in the morning and hustling home at five in the evening. I'm not some fantasy. I'm tangible. And I bring the realness not only to the screen where it deserves to be, but also out into the world. Then she goes on to talk about her work behind the camera. So right now she's been producing a lot and she produced a project with Idris Elba recently that he didn't want to do. And well, she he was, was just very busy. He was very busy. She made it so that production happened squarely between two projects he was on. And I can imagine he would have loved to have that time to just chill. And she played the single mom card again. Yeah, she calls him crying and she's like, I just really need this money. <laughs> and he's she's like, okay. Like, she says, look, man, I really need this gig. Okay, I got a son back home and that tuition is kicking my ass and I can't afford to miss on this opportunity. I can't do this without you, literally. And so she talks about all the work she's doing and she says, none of this would have been possible if on that side of Benjamin Button, I'd held on to that initial bitterness. As always, God was right and so was my daddy. All I had to do was be patient, shut out the noise and stay focused and joy would come in the morning. I really love that quote. Do you know what brings me some joy? What? A little round of June's journey. Listen, every now and then, everything on your phone is, starts to look the exact same, okay? But if you're craving a little bit of mystery, a little bit of adventure, something new, something exciting, June's journey is the perfect way to sit back and let your inner Sherlock escape into the glamorous roaring 20s. Search for hidden clues and solve mystery after mystery across thousands of vivid scenes. And there are new chapters added every single week, so there's always a new case waiting to be cracked. You are never at the end of June's journey. You play the game as June Parker, distantly related to our friend Claire Parker. That's true. That's like in the game. <laughs> it's not me. It's somebody else named Claire Parker. 
an amateur detective on a quest to solve the murder of her sister to uncover the family's many secrets. You'll never find objects as, devilish, as devilishly hidden in the intricate scenes full of little details before the timer runs out. A variety of game modes and puzzles await. There's a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective and download June's Journey today, available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. And then she has a chapter called My Squad that I love, and it's literally just an ode to her friends. And it's like an ode to having friends. Not only does she just list her friends, she talks about how important it is to have people that you can fall back on. She talks about like the group of people her mom leaned on and how that inspired her to be like, I need to make sure I have people. No matter where I go, there's got to be people. So she's still friends with her friend Tracy and her friends back home from D.C. But then she also has these Hollywood friends like Regina King. She loves Regina King. She loves Regina King. I think I would love Regina King if I knew her. And then tell the funniest story about friendship in this whole book. She talks about her friendship with Mary J. Blige and how they met years before they actually became friends. And you're like, okay, tell me the story. She was the biggest fan of Mary J. Blige. Listening to Mary J. Blige helped her get through her breakup and get back together and break up and get back together and break up with Mark. She says she owes everything to Mary J. Blige. And so she saw her at a party after she'd been in a movie and she was like, this is my opportunity. So she goes up to Mary J. Blige, taps her on the shoulder and just lets it rip. She says, I love you so much. You inspired my work. You got me through so much. I expected her to open her arms wide and fall and maybe ask me for my phone number and maybe offer to accompany me on a lunch date so that we could really get to know each other. Alas, it wasn't meant to be. So she gushes to Mary J. Blige and then Mary J. Blige just looks at her and turns around. And she was like, maybe she didn't hear me? And she like kind of hangs her head in shame and goes away. And then later is like, I'm just going to approach her one more time. And so she taps Mary J. Blige on the shoulder and Mary J. Blige's sister smacks her hand away. And she was like, what the and so she's like, all right, well, that sucked, but I'm still going to keep listening to her music. And then a couple of years later, they're at a party and Mary J. Blige sees her and comes across the room and is like, Taraji, oh my God, I'm obsessed with your work. And she's like, okay, let's be friends. <laughs> and she says, now they laugh about that story where Mary J. Blige ignored her and her sister smacked her at a club, but I don't know if I find it that funny. The book ends with grown woman where she kind of has like three final thoughts. I'll just say for a book that I loved and brought me to tears and I thought was like beautifully raw and vulnerable, this last chapter didn't really conclude that. It was kind of just some, I felt like it was like bullet points that they're like, well, we found no other place for this. So here's the last chapter. I mean, she also like really addresses the fact that she looks so young and she was like, it's because I, I laugh a lot. Yeah, and I have good genes. She's like, I'm lucky that I look young, but I never get work done. I also do like her statement about getting work done. She was talking about how a lot of people in Hollywood do get work done. Can you believe? <laughs> but she includes this. She's like, listen, people will get work done and they act like it's just a weekend away. You like drop by the cleaners, get your shirt wrung out and come back with new tits. Like that's not what happens most plastic surgery is invasive major surgery and it is extremely dangerous. And aside from it being dangerous, there's enormous recovery involved. Like you can't just get your whole body altered and then snap back the next day and go to the beach. Like that's not what happens. You are in extraordinary pain. And she's like, that's why I don't do it. I don't want to be in extraordinary pain for weeks on end, not to mention the things that could just actually go wrong. And I do feel like that is one of my biggest issues with the way Hollywood portrays plastic surgery. I think one, it's lying. I don't think you should lie about getting it because it gives people obviously unrealistic expectations, but two, the ease at which people just like, pop through for a change in being it's not easy it's not simple it's not quick it hurts there's a toll on your body 
She also tells a story about when Bruce Weber took photos of her without her wig and she was very nervous about it and actually is very happy now with how they came out. And then she ends it saying that all she wants to do with her life is she bought all this land in Maryland that used to be her family land that they had slowly been piecemeal selling off and she went back and rebought it per her dad's death wish. So she wants to build an estate there and then she also wants to purchase a piece of property on the beach somewhere in another country, nothing big and fancy, a bungalow or something cute where I can really breathe and let it all hang out. I'll be surrounded by the things that make me happiest, my son, my mom, my dog, maybe a grandbaby or two to spoil, perhaps a husband by my side if the fate allows, some fresh air, the light of the sun on the face and my truth, firm, strong, real. I am open to its possibilities. Lovely. So Ashley, final thoughts? I just think she's a seems like a wonderful person, very thoughtful, very kind, very like I mean to be one of the people in her life that she loves, like you are a lucky bitch. She is who she is and she never claims to be perfect, but she knows what she's good at and she won't and she'll fight for what she deserves. Yeah, and I really loved this book. I thought it was beautifully written, so brava. Brava. This week on the Patreon, we are going to watch the MGK documentary and I think also the Victoria's Secret documentary. That just came out too. So we're going to be watching those two documentaries. I also want to discuss the Kelly Wurstler, What I Eat in a Day article that we will post on our Instagram this week. So those are the three pieces of content we will be consuming and discussing and analyzing. And of course, we'll be giving you the private updates of our lives. We love you guys so much. And Ashley, who do we love the absolutely most? I want to give a hearty thank you to our five star reviewers and worm monsters. Thank you to Christina and Kay. It's always Christmas when you're writing a review. Thank you to Lou91. Cheers to you, Lou Dog, my favorite member of Sublime. Thank you to Wana Matcha. Listen, if I could give you that matcha, I would. Thank you to Lambert S. Any relation to. Adam Lambert from Lizzie McGuire. Let me know. Thank you to BBJ449. 449 BJs. You get it. Thank you to Allie's Co., my favorite business in town. Thank you to Wendy NC88. 88 thanks back to you. Thanks to thank you to Divas GGR growling right back at you. Thank you to KSJFJHRBWBAN. O-G-N-A. I appreciate you for providing me this new password. Thank you to, I appreciate P exclamation mark A-T-D. If you appreciate it, I appreciate it. Thank you to S-J Gray 630, my favorite shade of gray. Thank you to Meadow O. Baby, I hope someday we can run through a meadow together. Thank you to Madam Boss Lady. Listen, if I could put you in charge, I would. Thank you to Anna B. Smiley Face. Smiley Face, right back at ya. Okay, well, thank you to Madam Boss Lady. If I could make you the boss of everything, I would. And that's all for this week. Thank you guys. I love you so much.